The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. When Jesus had spoken these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and, they, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now you know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those, those whom you have given, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not let one of them been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them the word, and the, word has, the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know me, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that in love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. You may have a seat. If I had known I was reading, I would choose a shorter passage. <laughs> No, it's an honor to be with you all today. It's a lot better today than the rest of my week. Uh, I had the privilege this week of uh, buying a car. Anyone had to do that lately? 
Do you remember when that was fun? Do you remember when you went to the car place, you're like, this is great, I get to pick out a new car, what do I want, I can afford this and that. Now you go and like, we have nothing and it costs your first one child. So I had that privilege this week, but I had a secret weapon with me, and that was my father. If you haven't had the privilege of meeting my father, my father has been, he's uh, 64 years old, and he's been a mechanic for about 50 of those years. He can listen to a car and just go, ah, skipping, you don't want this one, and walk away from it. And I'm like, I don't hear anything. What are you talking about? We opened up the back of a, a one van, and he's like, no, it's been wrecked. I was like, what do you see? Everything looks totally normal. He's like, you see that fleck of paint up there? It's been painted. That means it's been wrecked. And we went inside. The guy's like, yeah, it's been wrecked. I was like, are you kidding me? And so he's this amazing person to have because in those situations, I'm very uncomfortable. Even though you think I would have learned over the years something, I learned literally nothing. And um, so I'm very uncomfortable. And the salesman's there, and he's like, what can we do to get you in this car today? And I'm like, I don't know. And I just want to run away. But (laughs) My dad's standing there beside me, and he goes, we're not getting this car, let's go. I mean, it's, it's amazing, because not only does he speak the lingo, but he understands it so well. The passage we're going to look at today is, is going to be one of these things that it's something we're kind of uncomfortable with that we don't like to admit we're uncomfortable with. When you're standing there talking to the mechanic, you don't want to admit you're uncomfortable, right? Because you're worried they're going to charge you more, and you're like, when he says, yeah, your alternator needs a new valve hose, and you're like, of course, it, it's like the, valve, the old valve hose is terrible. Uh, but you don't want to admit, I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. And then when you hear someone say, nah, you need to pray about it, you're like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. And then you go to pray about it, you're like, well, what do I do? I've got good news for you today. we got someone standing beside us. And he specifically left us a prayer in John 17. You heard about it last week from Bill McCutcheon, if you were here, our lead pastor. He left us a prayer, and we get to watch how he prays. Now, we're not just looking for the lingo like I learned from my dad, but what you're going to see is his understanding of prayer. And today, he gets to walk us through something that's pretty uncomfortable for us, if we're honest with ourselves, which is prayer. Now, I'm uncomfortable in this moment. If you were here last week, anyone here last week? Anyone hear Bill's introduction? I heard it too. And I was like, oh, good. Most preachers are afraid to, to even preach this passage. That sounds fun. And then he did a phenomenal job of telling us that the first thing Jesus prayed for was his glory. And the sermon got really weighty to me to preach. And then I said, well, I better do my research then. And the first thing I came across was a quote from John Knox. Now, if you don't know who John Knox is, John Knox is a great Scottish Presbyterian in the father of our faith. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Uh, I can't, my wife always tells me, like, don't do accents. They're always bad. But I'm like a moth to a flame. I, I literally can't help myself. So John Knox, uh, John Knox, on his deathbed in 1572, turned to his wife and said, read me John 17. And he said this, it's where I cast my first anchor. John Knox said this is where he put his anchor down, this passage you're about to hear today. So it's got some weight. So what we're going to hear from today, we're going to hear four ways Jesus prayed. Four things Jesus prayed for, if that's a better way, a clearer way for you to hear it. We're going to hear four ways things Jesus prayed for. Last week you heard one from Bill that he prayed for God's glory in this to be revealed. And here we're going to, today we're going to hear the next four of those. 
Okay, so if you've got a Bible, open up with me to John 17. I will say we are going to jump around way more than I typically do. If you've had the, uh, let's call it the pleasure, uh, of hearing me speak before, you know I'm a very linear thinker. I'm like verse 1 to verse 12. Let's da, 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 da. This passage won't let us do that. This passage, because it's so layered on each other, we're going to be doing a lot of jumping around. So if you, it's on your phone or in your physical Bible, you may have to kind of jump around to find us as we go through, but I'll try to guide us through the process. So John 17. So our first one that we're going to look for, the first of the four things we'll look at today that Jesus prayed for, Jesus prayed for our protection and an enduring relationship. Okay, he prayed for our protection and an enduring relationship. We're going to start in verse 11, and then we'll look at 15 and 16. This is John 17, 11. Here's what it says. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then down to 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In this beautiful part of his prayer, I want to start with what he's not praying for. Okay? This isn't as simple as some sort of prayer for a peaceful, simple, easy life. This isn't just a prayer for, you know, traveling mercies, which I've never particularly understood what that means, but apparently they travel. This isn't the no cancer prayer. This isn't the don't let the economy crash prayer. Now, it's not that those things are bad prayers. It's not that those things are wrong. I think you can make a real argument. Um, Ezra, Ezra chapter 8, they literally stop and fast and pray for protection as they travel. They, like, literally stop and say, like, listen, guys, we're not going to eat for a little bit so we can focus on God and focus on prayer, and we're going to pray that God protects us in this journey. So it doesn't mean that's a bad prayer. So don't hear me, like, going that, but I don't think it's the primary type of protection that Jesus is talking about here. When he's praying for us, he's praying for something bigger than our car making it there without breaking down. He's praying bigger than something than let's just not get a bad diagnosis. He's praying for something bigger than that. I think he's praying here that we would have this enduring relationship with the Father. Because if Jesus here was just praying that life would be really easy, the other things he said wouldn't make a lot of sense. If you go about a chapter earlier to Matthew 16.33, I'm sorry, John 16.33, does anyone know what he says there? It says, in this world you will have what? Trouble. Some of you may say tribulation, depending on the version of the Bible that you have. In this world, you will have trouble. He expected these things to happen, so he's clearly not praying those things away. Later on in John 21 and verse 19, he's talking to Peter, one of his beloved disciples who he's just kind of brought back into the fold. And he says, Peter, a time is coming where you won't choose what you wear, where you go, or if you're going to live or die. So he took to his disciples, who are his primary audience in the beginning of this prayer, and he says, Peter, life's going to get really rough, and I'm not going to stop it from happening. So that can't be what the prayer is for. So then here's the big question. When I say Jesus is praying for us to have uh, protection and enduring relationship, what do I mean by that? Here's the simple piece of what I mean by that. I think he is praying for God to hold us together in his hand. And let me give you, I'm going to kind of pause and step out of our passage and give you how I used to understand this and I think how I have a better picture of it now. 
Okay, and if, if y'all have got that at the back, there's a verse I would like to throw there. That First Timothy verse, if you can throw it out there. This is a verse that I read for years. And as I read this verse, I, as I think I misunderstood some of how Jesus was praying for me here, I read this the wrong way. Now, this is a really popular verse. You probably see it every time we're in any kind of election. This is 1 Peter 2, 1 through 2. And it says, First of all, then, I urge in that supplication, prayer, and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives, a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And I thought, that sounds really good. And so in my mind, that was, all right, do the right thing. Pray that God puts the right president in office. We get the right Supreme Court. We get the right legislation out there. Pray that God does all these things so that I can live my nice, little, comfortable, economically privileged life in all godliness and holiness as I sit in my house quietly and go, ah, God has blessed me. Hashtag blessed. This is so wonderful. This is my life. And I think I was probably ignoring two things. One, the context that this was written in. The context this was written in, when they were praying for kings and those in authority, do you know what those kings and people in authority had been doing to them? Persecuting and killing them. Their faith was illegal. And the main thing I was ignoring was verses 3 and 4. This is what follows that. So if that verse looks familiar, this is the part that people don't always follow through and read. This is verse 3 and 4. Here's what it says about what you just read there. This is good and pleases God our Savior. And then hold on, hear this. Who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? See, Paul's prayer isn't there for a peaceful little quiet life where we can sit in our house and just raise our kids and move on and this is life and the next generation can sit there and do the same. Those are beautiful things. But what he's praying for What he's asking for is the best path for people to be able to know the Father and share the Father. Why would he want a quieter world where the gospel could go out more clearly so that the gospel could go out, not so I can sit on it in my house and not risk alienating my neighbors by the gospel? He's praying for a best path forward because his primary hope in this is that people know the Father. If you need proof for that, go back to the verses that we just read. It said, I am no longer coming, or I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. There's nothing better he can offer you. I, as I was looking for a car this week, I, I thought about this a lot. Um, like, you know, what if I just went and the guy says, you know what, I like you. <laughs> you just got to look. I got one of those faces. It just makes me want to give you a car. I'm like, well, of course I do. He goes, Take your pick. That sounds like an amazing gift, but it's nothing. It's a thing that will rust away and break down, and this will break, and this will break, and next, you know, that one will be on the trash heap. But the gift you just heard you have there is the Son of God, the incarnate Emmanuel, says, God, please bring them to yourself. Please keep them in your name. Relationship with the Father is the best thing he can do for you. It's not your physical health. It's not the ability to have a child. It's not finding you a spouse. It's not finding you a job. It's not keeping a job. It's not keeping economic struggle away. The best thing the Father can do is give you himself. 
And if you sit in this room and he has given you himself and has come into relationship with you, he has already given you the single best thing he will ever give you in your entire life. And if when you walk out of this room in approximately 21 minutes of me talking longer, if you walk out of this room and in the center of your mind and heart today is the Father has already given me the best thing he could ever give me, here's what I can promise you. Your day will be better. And so what Jesus prays here is not just for him to give himself to you, but did you catch the second part? He says, keep them in your name. Now, quick question here. Who's doing the keeping in that scenario? Who's the burden on in that scenario? God. Yes, absolutely. It's God. God's doing the keeping in that scenario. This basic thing is the most important thing I can maybe tell you in that even your own salvation is not up to you. It's God who keeps you. I've got a six-year-old son. Um, you'll probably see him. He looks, he is my mini-me in so many ways. He turned six about, oh gosh, like a little under a month ago. If I'd walked up to him at his birthday party and handed him a punch card, one of those little, I don't know what you call it, you know what I mean, the little things, uh, and I'd hand it to him, I said, listen, here's the deal. You got 50 punches on here. Every time you mess up, we're taking one off. At the end of the 50th punch, I'm sorry, you've lost the family name. I'd probably have a really obedient kid who would need a lot of counseling, like a lot of counseling, like right away. Um, but would I have a son? I keep him in my name. I gave him my name. He's my son. And when it comes to your salvation, understand with great clarity, the God of the universe keeps you in his name. He's the one who keeps you from going off the cliff. He's the one who gives you faith. All of it comes from him. And so when you hear Jesus say, keep them in his name, he's asking the strongest, most secure source of all time, God, keep them in a relationship with you, please. So that's the first thing he prays for, is that we stay in relationship with him, that we can go forward in it. Second one is this, and this one's going to be really important to me. As I prep for this, this one is the one where my heart definitely spent the most time. The second thing he prays for is he prays for our unity, the disciples then and us now. So if you want to put it simply, he prays for our unity, the body of Christ. He prays for our unity. I'm going to go to two spots. I'm going to read verse 11 again, where he's praying for the disciples' unity, and I'm going to pray uh, read verses 20 and 21, where he's speaking to those who would come after the disciples, okay? Here's it, to prove it to you. Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. And down to verse 20, I do not ask that these only, for these only, but also for those who would believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Man, what an awesome prayer. What a very simple, amazing, beautiful prayer. But think about this gift that he's offering, not even offering, praying for, I guess is a better way to put it. He's praying that we can experience relationship like he does. Father, you and I are one for all of eternity past. In all of eternity future, we will be one. And if you want to think about what happened at the cross, this isn't that sermon, but the, the weightiness of what Jesus did at the cross was in some way separate that relationship. 
so that he could take our sin. But he said, I want them to experience what it's like when I'm with you and I trust you and know you and our relationship lives in eternal perfection. I want them to experience that with each other. Now, quick question. Is that what you experience in your daily life here? Is that what you've experienced in this church? Continual communal perfection in all unity? Is that what you experience at home? Probably not. We're actually kind of marked by the opposite, aren't we? We can take unity real quick and find a thousand different ways to destroy it. And so the question I wrestled with this week, and when I told you I spent some time thinking on it, I wrestled with why is this the case? And I sort of did this little internal case study, this self-analysis, if you will. And so I'll, I'll put you through the same exercise, and I promise not to make you say anything out loud, but just think it through. We're going to start inside of your own bed. For those who are married... And then there's someone when you wake up in the morning and they're with you beside you in the bed is that person. Do you always live in perfect unity and relationship with that person? No one looked? Look straight ahead? There you go. Well done. <laughs> I was making sure. If someone had turned like this, it would have been, God help you. Uh, of course not. Of course you don't live that way. So let's go outside of that. But you're like, well, that's tough. Marriage is hard. You're together all the time. They snore more than they think they do, whatever that may be. Let's extend out of that. How about the people in your house? If you're living in your parents' house, you always live in perfect relationship with them. If your kids live in your house, do you always live in perfect unity with them and relationship fits just perfectly? All right, let's go past that. How about your extended family? Anyone have those family members? Everyone. That cousin's wonderful. They don't ever come and steal your stuff when they're at your house. Uh, all right, well, you can't pick your family. Let's take your friends then. Anyone ever been let down by a friend? Anyone ever been turned on by a friend? Anyone ever been stabbed in the back, let down? They said they would do this and they didn't do this by someone you picked as someone to be one of your friends? Let's go past your friends. How about the people you know and see regularly? We've got jobs. We've got neighbors. That going well? Super easy to have that neighbor who lives across the street who doesn't ever do anything to their house or either loud parties or whatever that may be. That person three cubicles down that it just never does their job and you have to cover for them continually. All right, let's go past that. Let's go into this church. Anyone ever been down, let down by someone in their life group or their community group? Anyone ever had conflict or struggle with people that you thought we were brought together to grow with? Anyone ever been let down by the congregation, someone in this room who you've had problems with? How about the leadership of this church? Anyone ever reached out to an elder or deacon and they've not lived up to what they should have done? The pastors haven't done what you thought they should have done or you haven't liked how they've led or what they've done in a certain moment? How about our presbytery? How about our denomination? How about the American church? How about the global church? Do you see the problem? We can't reach unity inside of our own bedroom and we're going to gather three billion Christians across the planet and we want unity. Do you get why Jesus is praying here? Because this task is so astronomically hard that it can't be done with mere human effort. It can't be accomplished that way. And the biggest shame in all of this, more than anything else, is this is one of Satan's primary tools, one of his primary tools and weapons that he uses to defame the gospel. He uses those divisions, even the necessary ones, even when we look at someone who claims to follow Jesus and we have to step away for gospel purposes. In those moments, he's ready to jump in and wants to jump in. 
And so certainly inside of a body of Christ like this that is growing, that is doing great things in this community, he's going to want to step into any sort of problems with unity and go, aha, I've got it. It it always reminds me of the same story. So 2000, oh gosh, 15, I went to an Ole Miss football game. Anyone an Ole Miss alum in the room? All right, well, I'll speak kindly. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so I went to an Ole Miss football game. We went to a game at Alabama. Any Alabama people here? Oh, maybe there's one of each. I can't, all right, I'll, be, I'll, I'll tame it down. All right, uh, so I went with my friend who's a huge Ole Miss fan. He actually now lives in Oxford. We went to the game. The Alabama fan will remember this because they won the national title anyway, but they lost. Uh, we went with all these 10,000 of us in all our old Miss colors. I borrowed a t-shirt. And we're in this section, and there's 90,000 plus Alabama fans there. And there was all these different backgrounds and economic levels and races and everything. And everyone's having a good time in the old Miss section because they're all for old Miss in this moment. And the game starts going really well. Now, the three guys behind me, <laughs> I, don't, I still don't know how they did it, they snuck in three full liquor bottles. I'm not talking like a mini bottle. Like, I turn around and hear clink, and like on the ground behind me is like a, a big old bottle, like three big old bottles of liquor. And they were going to the snack stand and getting a soda and pouring out like half the soda on the ground behind us so it ran down on our shoes. Uh, and then they were filling it up to, you know, to make their, uh, what they were using to keep themselves, let's, let's call it hydrated for the evening. Now, as we're, the game's going really well. Ole Miss is up seven in the second half. They're playing really well. The Ole Miss quarterback is in the shotgun. The ball gets snapped really high. He jumps up and kind of tips it up in the air, and you watch it kind of flutter for a second. He pulls it down, and when he pulls it down, he's on like his back foot. He looks like me trying to throw a football. He's on his back foot, and he just lobs it up in the air. And you see this Alabama defensive back whose eyes probably get this big. He's like, yes, yes, yes. And a, an Ole Miss player just comes in and tips it out of the air again. And then you see it start fluttering up in the air. And then out of nowhere, this receiver just runs from Ole Miss down and just like catches it in stride. Like the play was meant for him. And he goes 70 yards to the touchdown. They go up 14 points. And the Ole Miss section I am in, I mean, when I say exploded, exploded. Like everyone is jumping and going around. I'm excited, but you know, I don't even really care who it was. Uh, but everyone is jumping around. And the gentlemen, we'll use that term uh, loosely in this scenario, uh, have their cups, and they're jumping, and there's no lids involved in this scenario. So I look up, and above me is just a wave of Sprite and alcohol, all right, just coming down on top of all of us, and we get, like, they must have doused five people across this row, and no one got upset. I was a little upset, but I faked like I wasn't upset. And then it happened again. They intercepted a pass like 10 minutes later because they went back, got another cup, poured it out, filled it in because they allowed that one out. They went back. It happened again like 15 minutes later in the game. And I was stone cold sober, but I promise you, if I got pulled over, there's no way that officer's believing it <laughs> based off my uh, aroma, let's say. And, and so, but no one cared. If that happened at a restaurant, if that happened at a party, if that happened at any other event, you probably have a fist fight on your hand between people if you'd given them a free soda shower. You know what I mean? It's, it's not going to happen. But in this moment, no one cared because they were all so wrapped up in the greatness of Ole Miss football, they didn't care. And I thought to myself, they could overlook this failure. 
they could overlook their differences because they were wrapped up in the glory of their team. <laughs> and no offense, I apologize. And all it was was old Miss football. Our team, the body of Christ, we had the hardest time overlooking and forgiving people's mistakes. We had the hardest time overlooking our differences inside of our churches. They could find unity around a middle-of-the-pack SEC football team, and we have a hard time finding unity around the God of gods, the maker of all things, who not only knows us but loves us. It's a shame. Now, I say this with some pause, because some of you have been through terribly hard things. Some of you have been wronged in ways you should never have been wronged by people inside of the church. Some of you can look back at things maybe that happened here or at another church and say, that doesn't reflect God, and you're 100% right. So what do we do with that? We're going to do two things. They're really simple. One, we're going to see why we go after unity. Why would Jesus pray for unity even when he knew bad things were going to happen? And two, we're going to see how we handle it. Look down with me at verse uh, 21. This is what it says. You're going to listen for this phrase. You're going to listen for the phrase, so that. You got it? So that? We good? All right. That, the, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they may be in us. Here's our phrase. So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and they in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. See, Jesus didn't want us to simply turn a blind eye to the sin of others. He didn't want us to allow evil inside of our congregations. He didn't want you to suffer silently when things happened in your life. But he wants you to, and I can tell you with great gospel clarity here, follow his path towards reconciliation. Go to Matthew 5. Go to Matthew 18, where we have these two great teachings from Jesus about what happens when I've sinned against you and what happens when you've sinned against me. How do we handle these things? And pursue reconciliation, not revenge. Pursue reconciliation, not bitterness. Scripture also says, don't let the seed of bitterness grow. We have to pursue biblical reconciliation. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Don't you understand? Please understand with great clarity here how we treat each other. The unity inside of this church the unity inside of Hilton Head Prez affects salvation in Hilton Head and Bluffton. Anyone disagree? Because that's kind of a big statement. Now, God determines. God's in charge. God is sovereign. But what he just said here is, why do we want unity? So that the world may believe. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. Do you understand that how you pursue relational unity here? in Hilton Head, has eternal power and consequences connected to it. Do not see your comments as small. And I stand here humbly. You have elected me and placed me as an elder inside this church, and I'm keenly aware every day of the ridiculous weight that that bears outside of the grace of Christ. 
And so I stand in the authority that you've given me to say, gossip's not acceptable here. Disunity's not acceptable here. We have to pursue biblical reconciliation. When you've got questions and things you don't understand, when you've had problems with a person, you've got to pursue biblical reconciliation. These aren't options as believers. This is the prerequisite so that they may know and they may believe. See, unity matters at such a high level. And the world is so small now. We could have a problem here in Hilton Head before. And you could have a problem, and Hilton Head could be affected by it. They'd say, ah, they they say they love Jesus, but they can't love each other well. They live in disunity. They say they love Jesus. But we have this thing now called Twitter and Facebook and global news. And when churches fall apart, the world knows and the world sees. It's a small world. So why does Hilton Head matter? Our little island, our little town of Bluffton right across the bridge matter? Because the world's gotten small, everyone. So unity matters. On to our third. Unity matters, but Jesus also prayed for our, uh, Jesus also prayed that God would sanctify his followers. So here's what it said. This is verse 17 through 19. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through this word. That word sanctity, you've got, or sanctify, you've got there, uh, it comes from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy. And so sanctify means to make yourself holy. So the simple gist of what Jesus is asking and praying for here is that Holy Father, make them holy and keep them holy. I got that from Bill, uh, Bill's notes. He said he described it as Holy Father, make them holy and keep them holy. See, Jesus is praying there that we would become different. We want unity inside of our church. Guess one of the things we've got to stop doing? Sinning against each other. You know what creates disunity at the most easy level? Personal sin. So Jesus is praying, not just that you would recognize your sin, but that you'd be able to run away from your sin. You'd be able to get away from your sin. He's praying for God to fundamentally change the person sitting in your seat today. So he did that. So as you struggle for gossip, what we talked about just a moment ago, if, it, if your first step is towards that, you spend daily time praying about it. If you struggle with sexualizing people with your eyes, pray about it. If you struggle with anger, pray about it. If you struggle with faithlessness and doubts and fears, feel it, yes, read about it, ask people for help, pray about it. See, prayer is meant to be here as a changing weapon inside of your own life. R.C. Sproul said this, Prayer does change things. It changes all kinds of things. But the most important thing it changes is us. As we engage with communion with God more deeply and come to know the one whom we're speaking to more intimately, that growing knowledge of God reveals to us more brilliantly who we are and our need to change in conformity to him. Prayer changes us profoundly. What is it for you? What's that area in your life 
that you say, I don't think I'll ever beat this sin. What's the one no one knows about? What's the one you've gotten really good at hiding? When's the last time you prayed for it? And I know that sounds silly at some level. Like some of you go, oh, okay, all right. Jesus' weapon to change us was praying for us. If you're not willing to pray about a sin, if you're not willing to stop daily and say, God, this pride, it owns me. I can't help. I, I, everyone's got to know what a good person I am. Everyone's got to know how, everything I've accomplished. I can't enter into a conversation without telling someone how great I am subtly and solidly. Surely no one notices this. They do. Uh, sure, but surely no one notices this. Take your time and pray for it. If you're not willing to actually pray about it, if you're not willing to take 10, 15 minutes and get on your knees before God and say, God, I can't beat this. You're no chance you're willing to fight it. And if you are willing to fight it, you're not armed to do so. So I tell you this. Some of you are trying to take on sanctification, and you're bringing a knife not to a gunfight. You're bringing a knife to a nuclear war. And you're standing there slashing your little blade and what you need is the God of all power behind you who has weapons you can't imagine. And our final thing he prayed for. Jesus prayed, and I think this one, in all honesty, this one is the culmination of all of them. Jesus prayed we will experience his joy. This is um, what he says in verse I believe, 24. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may, ha- they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus prayed you would experience his joy fulfilled in you. How does that work? Well, let's look what else he prayed for. There's joy in being in relationship with the Father. He prayed for that. There's joy in relational unity. He prayed for that. There's joy in leaving the things that didn't satisfy you for a sanctified life that will satisfy you. There's joy in revealing God's love to others. He prayed for that. And there's joy in leading others to understand the love of God. How do I know this? Because Jesus found joy in his relationship with the Father. Jesus found joy in being one with the Father. Jesus found joy in obedience to the Father, even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus found joy in revealing God's love to us, even at his cost of his personal pleasure and pain. Ask Christ for his joy because he's prayed it for you. So as we conclude today, as we conclude today, I simply tell you this. Please pray. Whether it's for unity of this church, I as an elder of churches beg you to pray for this church. Whether it's your own sanctification, what God needs to do in your life, whether it's how God can use us as a body, as you use you to take the gospel to other people, whether it's praise for him for holding on to you by his power in his name, pray for us. Yesterday, I was, we went to the pool twice because it's summer in Hilton Head, and that's literally what you can do if you want to go outside. We went to the pool in the morning, and they're like, what do we do in the afternoon? Well, there's the pool. Uh, and we went to the pool again in the afternoon, and my English-Irish self is a magnet for turning red right away. Uh, I put sunscreen on like 15 times. And then, despite that, I woke up this morning with a very red nose. And it took me a long time in life to realize that sunscreen wasn't really an optional part for me if I was going to go out in the sun and live in this world. It wasn't just good for me, but it was necessary for me. And when I got too busy and ignored it 
and then, or if I didn't use it properly, it would be a problem. Jesus needed to pray to the Father. How much more must we? Jesus needed to pray for unity. How much more with me must we? Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified. How much more should we? Jesus prayed for our joy. How much more should we? Let's pray. Lord, we are we're nothing without you. Father, the fact that you would take the time, hours before your death, to stand in the presence of your Father and just ask him to hold on to me. There's not a lot of better pictures of your love. So Jesus, today, as we stand and we sing, may we stand and sing as loved people who are being held on to by the mighty God. May we stand together as a unified body, as people that you are changing, and may we sing inside all of that and the joy that you've given us. You are beyond a good God, and we are thankful for you. Amen.